May we have your attention, please? Welcome to this, our seventh episode in the series about when software goes wrong. In our previous episodes on the failure of complex software-based systems, we've looked at what has gone wrong and made the connection to the stages of the validation and verification process, the V model. We've been preparing and publishing these podcasts as part of the industry's response to the RABE Cambrian recommendations on improving the specification, verification and validation of complex software-based systems as they are designed, installed, tested and implemented. In this episode, the last in this current series on this topic, we'd like to engage your imagination and curiosity in spotting those novel emerging hazards associated with complex software-based systems. We call them reasonably foreseeable scenarios. But put more simply, it's something that you could think of that could possibly happen when considering railway operations. I'm happy to say I again have Dr. Emma Taylor, former rocket scientist and system safety and risk engineer with me, and we're going to talk about more incidents when software went wrong, hopefully to inspire you to start to imagine new scenarios, but more importantly, about ways of thinking about what could go wrong that will help you think about those reasonably foreseeable scenarios so that you can plan for them and design them out before they happen. So, Welcome, Emma. Let's get straight to it. Surely you can work out your reasonably foreseeable scenarios just by doing a good risk analysis. How else do you approach finding out what might go wrong? Hello again, Ant. And yes, a risk analysis will bring out some of those reasonably foreseeable scenarios. Of course, obviously, when we're looking at what might happen in the future, we do have to look to the past, not least because history has got an unfortunate habit of repeating itself. And of course, while it would be great to be able to look at all the railway incidents caused by software-based systems, it's actually just not really that possible because there may or may not be enough railway incidents that have already happened that you can then investigate. So you've got this chicken and egg situation here. You need to learn from what's already happened. But if those incidents haven't happened yet, how can you learn? So people think of incidents as accidents that get investigated. So actually, it's vitally important that anything that stops normal operation of the railway should be reported and recording. And unfortunately, our maturity of reporting at the moment is such that we don't quite know how many of these incidents relating to complex software-based systems there actually are. So, Emma, if we don't know about many rail incidents, what can we look at to guide us towards those as yet unseen but reasonably foreseeable events? Well, Anne, let's keep it high level. Let's not just talk about rail. Let's talk about control systems, for medical systems, for shipping, and again, for aircraft. But because rail can be just as vulnerable as any other form of transport or system, we can learn from the vulnerabilities of these other industries too. So what you're saying is we can use what's gone wrong to determine what could go wrong. Yes, we can. It is a really good point to challenge back on that. And it's also important to make clear that when it comes to digital safety and security, nobody's good at it and nobody's bad at it. And there's also not a perfect and complete set of existing scenarios that if you address and are able to respond to, will let you stop thinking about managing digital safety. That's why it's important for you to imagine your own reasonably foreseeable scenarios. But it's not helpful or particularly easy to start with a blank sheet of paper. So what we're going to do in this podcast is look at some common themes, give you a small menu of ideas to help prime your approach. You could think of them as chapter headings for a story, causal factors, 
or hazards, which is the situations of potential to cause harm. Whilst these are specific risk assessment terms with quite precise uses, in this podcast and when you're starting out, don't worry about that. Just start by imagining what if this happens and then use our case studies, our ideas to help trigger your imagination. And right at the end of this podcast, as a final point, we'll wrap up with a simple mental model around doors and houses. We want all of you listening to this to feel that you too can take your railway experience and blend it with these podcasts and start to imagine these reasonably foreseeable scenarios. This sounds like it could be really helpful. So what are the common themes and where do I start to think about this? So to start with, I'm just going to run through a list of some considerations and then we can expand on them as we go. They are overconfidence in software, confusing reliability with safety, which means just that because it's worked for a long time doesn't mean it will continue to do so. Lack of defensive design. And defensive design means if the software fails, there is something else that can stop an issue from happening. There's failure to eliminate root causes, complacency, unrealistic risk assessments, inadequate investigation or follow-up on investigation reports, inadequate software engineering practices, software reuse, and safe versus friendly user interfaces. If you've listened to some of our previous episodes on when software goes wrong, some of these ideas will sound familiar. I've mentioned earlier that history has a habit of repeating itself. Well, that list I've just read out is around 35 years old. It was derived based on a software issue that led to a loss of control in a system that uses radiation to treat cancer. People ended up receiving too high a dose as a result. But Emma, 35 years ago, a mainframe computer was the size of a room and used magnetic tape and paper tape and punch cards. Nobody had heard of a graphical user interface and the few personal computers that existed measured memory in kilobytes. Surely we've moved on from there. Surely this can't still be current. I'll answer that question in two parts. Firstly, old or mature software is still being used. We talked about in our air traffic control podcast about code that was initially developed in the 1990s. And yes, while we have moved on, even now some organizations are still using relatively mature operating systems. And when I say relatively mature, in one example, I'll talk about earlier versions of Windows that were used, whether it's Windows 7 or Windows XP. Old operating systems can be a more welcoming home for modern viruses. But unlike a fence that you can patch up, some old operating systems can't be patched or protected to be resilient to the rapidly changing modern threats. There's a wide variety of reasons why that can't be done. There isn't one magic solution to all problems. So old doesn't mean safe. Those reliable systems that have worked well for a long period of time still have their safety weaknesses, even though there may be a long track record of reliable operation. The second part of my answer is that history, unfortunately, teaches us that we can make similar mistakes twice, three times, four times and more. RSSB was formed to stop accidents happening again by making sure the past isn't forgotten. And the way to do this is to make sure that things like trends in data and recurring factors get noticed and not ignored. And then, and this is key, action is taken. But if you don't know, you can't act. And we are repeating ourselves in this podcast, in blogs, webinars, and everywhere. We repeat this because it is a fundamental point. Reporting and recording are essential. Not only because there is a legal requirement and there is a duty to cooperate too across the railway, but without this emerging information on the emerging hazards related to emerging complex software-based systems, we don't know where to look and we don't know where to focus individually, within a team, within an organization, 
as a duty holder with his legal duties or across the whole rail industry. And particularly for complex software-based systems, the line between safety-critical or safety-related software and software that doesn't have an obvious immediate safety impact can be difficult to see. Perhaps they are all connected in a way that isn't immediately apparent, which is why it's important to report broadly. So, Emma, what does this mean for what we want to learn and what incidents we should look at to learn from? I think the answer is to look more broadly at what complex software-based systems incidents you can look to learn from, particularly when they are all connected together, like on the railway. So let me tell you another story I found when preparing for this episode. In 2017, a piece of malware was released that attacked the IT systems of companies across the world. One company that suffered was Maersk, possibly best known to the general public for its shipping containers and often seen on freight trains. Maersk responded dynamically and openly to the incidents. You can find news items about it online. In just one of these articles, their chief technology and information officer set out the whole story with some powerful numbers about the cost and scale of impact. Here's a direct quote. The malware spread through the network using a number of different methods. Our software at Maersk was patched appropriately, but that only provided defense against one of the ways the malware was spreading. It exploited other weaknesses, not only technological, but also procedural and behavioral. We talked in a previous podcast about the importance of operational logging and recording to be able to recover better from an incident. With the best will in the world, not every incident can be stopped. And so this recovery mindset should be considered by everyone. Again, quoting from that article about this incident, all end user devices, including 49,000 laptops and print capability were destroyed. All of our 1,200 applications were inaccessible and approximately 1,000 were destroyed. Data was preserved on backups, but the applications themselves couldn't be restored from those as they would have been immediately been reinfected. Around 3,500 of our 6,200 servers were destroyed, and again, they couldn't be reinstalled. From the start of the attack, Maersk reports that the virus spread through its network in just seven minutes. There was 100% destruction of anything based on Microsoft that was attached to the network. If this was a Hollywood movie, you could imagine employees running around, pulling, unplugging wall sockets in a vain attempt to stop the spread. We weren't there in the operations center as the crisis hit, but it's a fair bet that the idea was at least considered. Now, Maersk was able to restore to some form of operations pretty quickly and in a matter of days, but this was due to one factor, which wasn't part of their resilience planning, as far as I'm aware. As the attack happened, one office in Nigeria was offline because of a power cut, and so its computer was offline while the virus was spreading. That, by chance, situation meant that there was just one uncorrupted version of a certain type of file in existence. And it was from that one file that Maersk was able to rebuild its entire system. Well, Emma, that's a great example. It shows the benefits and vulnerabilities of a highly connected system. And that only because Maersk by chance had a copy that was offline, was there a seed from which they could rebuild and regrow their global network. We have to remember, of course, that we're doing this podcast to emphasize the importance of being able to rebuild a system and to have the records and documentation with which to do that. In response to the RABE recommendations passed to the ORR that they then passed to Network Rail, RSSB, and the wider industry to respond to about complex software-based systems from the Cambrian line incident. And a complex software-based system includes lots of systems connected together just like the mask network. But what does all of that mean for me as the person who, let's say, 
has been drafted into a team to specify a new system. How do you actually do an effective risk assessment for your digital systems? Surely this problem's just too big. Like in every risk assessment, you start by looking at the system definition and think about the ways that system can go wrong. Maersk had a highly interconnected computer system, like many computer systems today. And these systems don't exist in isolation. They have a boundary with the outside world. And it was through this boundary, this fence, whether you call it physical or digital, that the Maersk malware was inserted in an office in Ukraine, it turns out. And that's an unintended boundary breach. But of course, you need to breach that system boundary for good reasons. You need to bring traction power into the railway from the outside, for example, and you need to send data and communications from the railway through the boundary to the outside world as well. So there need to be doors in that physical and digital boundary to let the right people in, the right information. And you also need to make sure that the right people have got the right keys. And if you like, computer software patches are like improvement to door locks. And so what happened with Maersk that was already that they'd patched well, there were other ways to get through like jumping over the wall, so to speak. And because systems change, particularly digital systems, there will always be regular maintenance and changes from patches. And sometimes a relatively small maintenance change can have an unexpected impact too. So I've just talked about maintenance and patching. So here's an example of a significant impact a software patch caused with the class 700 and 717 trains. The ORR published a report on this 2019 incident in 2020, which is available online. What happened was that there was a significant power supply problem, which meant that the trains shut down as they were designed to do. They were locked out by onboard safety systems and disconnected from traction power. And after an initial diagnosis, drivers were told to carry out a battery reset process. But this only restored seven of the 29 trains to normal operation, which meant the 29 weren't operational. And a technician with a laptop had to visit each of those trains to get it back into service. Emma, from reading the report, as I understand it, seven of those trains could be returned to service with a battery reset. But why was there a difference between those seven trains and the other 22? I'll read to you from the ORR report. Individual trains within the fleets had different software levels installed, as a software change was being implemented progressively across the fleets. On detecting the frequency drop, the units with software versions 3.25.x went into a temporary lockout, whilst the units with versions 3.27.x went into permanent lockout. The drivers were able to reset the units with a temporary lockout by carrying out a battery reset, while the units with a permanent lockout required a technician to attend to perform a reset. Now, that more recent software update was done to address what had been identified as a safety risk with the earlier version. I would encourage you to read the report to understand how this came about. But the intention was to avoid a driver doing a battery reset and potentially returning a train to an unsafe operating condition. When the electricity supply variance happened, all of the trains with the updated software did what the software told them to do. And this is what then needed the technician reset. And then, of course, the railway had to respond to significant operational challenges because there were trains that couldn't be moved. So one message here is that measures to improve safety can sometimes have unintended consequences. And it is always worthwhile considering and anticipating a range of reasonably foreseeable scenarios. For Maersk, it would be, what happens if all our computers go down at once? And for train operations, it's much the same question. Which brings us back to the question of what people can do now to anticipate what might happen. 
So to capture reasonably foreseeable scenarios for complex software-based systems, you don't actually need to ask complex questions. It's simple questions that work. What happens if? But as you pull on that simple thread, you gain additional insights. Another example we could talk about is what presented as a relatively minor software change in a complex software-based system, but actually led to multiple fatalities in two separate events. That was on the 7378 MAX aircraft. It was a change that was presented as only needing limited certification, didn't require pilot recertification, and then led to significant fatalities. Those incidents are relatively recent and regulatory reviews and changes are still being looked at by regulators, so we're not going to go into further detail, but details are available online and RSSB has prepared case studies on this and other complex software-based systems across a range of industries. So what now? Well, Ants, in this podcast and the previous ones, we've run through a wide range of scenarios and case studies, and there are more resources available in the show notes too. So I hope that when our listeners start thinking and talking about what might go wrong with their complex software-based systems, they'll be able to cite some examples for rail and for other sectors. Hopefully, it's given them some good ideas. And I'd like to close out with a really simple mental model. Imagine a house with a fence around it, with doors and windows on the outside, and we mean glazed windows, not windows, windows, and also doors on the inside with their locks too. There's a fence around the house, and it's been all been patched up and modified over the years. Now, if you were thinking about trying to protect that house from someone breaking in, or if you wanted to let somebody in to do some internal works like removing the wall, intuitively, you'd know about how to look at how to protect yourself and how to avoid damaging your house. You know, if someone comes to service your boiler, you check their ID. But if we're talking about a digital house and a digital fence, because it's harder to see, it's harder to write down the digital parts, and it's harder to see how everything connects together, then somehow it's harder to imagine what might happen, what might be the reasonably foreseeable scenarios that could cause something to happen to your digital house or or your railway system, if you like, that you didn't want to. But it's not impossible. First of all, you'd learn from other people, other situations, which is what this podcast series and when software goes wrong is all about. And then you try and imagine what might go wrong so you can plan for it before it happens. And that's reasonably foreseeable scenarios. Thank you, Emma. And thank you to our listeners for sticking with us in our series on podcasts on when software goes wrong. We appreciate that this has been a slightly longer episode, but I hope it's been worthwhile for the lessons that can be learned and applied to all complex software-based systems. And we hope that you keep this way of thinking for every aspect of your work so that you can spot and report issues when they happen. As always, if you have any comments or questions about this or any other of our podcasts, please email me at podcasts at rssb.co.uk. Once again, thank you for listening. And for now, goodbye. Thank you.